Welcome to Go Do Create, a podcast about people that are passionate about the things that they do in their life and the things that they create. I'm your host, Jess Brown. On today's episode, I'm going to introduce you to a dear friend of mine, Aaron Milas. We've known each other since junior high, so we've been able to grow up together, creating together, uh, enjoying music and movies, and a ton of life experience. And I, I couldn't think of a better person to have for my first episode on talking about people who love to create. And uh, without further ado, here's our first episode. Aaron, over the course of your career, um, I've noticed you've gravitated towards small shops or uh, startups, just smaller companies in general. Um, and I'm, I'm just kind of curious why you chose that path versus going to some big corporation. I feel like I have built a career out of that, to be honest. Like I, I have more experience working lean and solo than I do uh, working collaboratively. And I think that started because I was working in a, a very small post shop. I mean, salt, you remember back in those days. Um, and that was, I think at our, at our height, we had like 12 people and that was including, you know, freelancers, you know? So like there was always, uh, multiple jobs happening, which meant everybody had to wear a lot of hats. And a lot of times it came down to me and maybe one other person doing, uh, one project. And then from there, when I went into freelancing, uh, I kind of, I, I ported over some of those clients, you know, like that, uh, that kind of drifted from salt for whatever reason. And, um, they had like small things they needed done. And, and I was able to like take those on cause they had worked with me in the past, but they also expected me to be able to kind of handle that as a one man shop, you know? Um, and it's been really, it's, it's interesting to, for one, on the one hand where it's like, if you don't keep yourself uh, vigilant, you, you start to like lose that drive to like pick up new software skills. Like, uh, I, like I, I'm so resistant to learning sketch cause I'm like, no, I know, I know my tools. I know the ones that I'm good at. And like, I just want to stick with that, you know? Um, and that's, it's like, it's kind of a, it's interesting. Cause I think you sort of start to like, uh, you start to like shape your style and your workflow to, like the tools you're familiar with, you know, you start to shape your ideas to like, okay, I know that I can execute this because I've done this and this and this in the past, you know, like I've, I've had very little exposure in, uh, like 3d software cause it stresses me out. Uh, <laughs> but I've done it a little bit. Um, but I still prefer, you know, 2d, two and a half D work, you know? So it's just, um, it's interesting kind of how that came out of having to be, quick and lean and, and just kind of figure out how to make my tools do what I needed. Yeah. What do you think during your early career or even college or maybe even all the way back to high school um, started giving you those skill sets to be able to work that way? Because, I mean, at least for me growing up, um, I didn't, outside of you and your brother and maybe just a couple of other people, nobody else was doing the stuff I was doing growing up. Um, mm -hmm. There's no team sports for learning Flash or After Effects or whatever. <laughs> there should be. Um, you know, w were there things growing up that kind of primed you for that um, ability to work on your own and be that lean and focused or... 
Was it out of necessity? I think it's interesting. I, I mean, growing up, I don't think I jumped into this realm until college. Um, like in high school, I would draw a lot, just like hand drawing, you know, um, and like my brother and I were always, you know, kind of like talking about writing and, and developing things that way. But it wasn't until college that I started actually getting some practical, like hands-on experience with it. And I remember like one project I was doing, it was, it was for like my film one class, like in my sophomore year or late freshman year. And I had this one shot in a film where I needed uh, an effect that I couldn't do in Final Cut Pro. Because it, it would look too, like at the time, Final Cut Pro couldn't handle like motion easing and stuff like that. You couldn't really like, yeah, I remember uh, those days. like little tiny things that you couldn't do. I mean, I'm sure now you can do everything and like Premiere is pretty robust. But like, um, I remember sitting in the computer lab at school and uh, a friend of mine was sitting there. He had a little more experience with After Effects than I did. And he was trying to walk me through. And this was literally my first exposure to After Effects. And I was I was pretty intimidated by, by it because, I mean, even now, like, 15 years later, I'm still learning, you know, things about After Effects. It's a huge program. But like at the time, I just, I, just getting keyframes down was intimidating. And, and my friend said, he's like, he's like, yeah, but think, he's like, you could do the shitty version of this, but like think about how much better that 10% is, you know? You're right. And, um, and I was just like, I was like, damn it, you're right. You know, like I had, I, I kind of stuck with it and, um, and it was just kind of a very slow, progressive step from there, you know, just like uh, finding out that, oh, OK, so I can do that, you know, and I can mm-hmm. do these little things. But um, and also I, we had Josh and I were a part of a, a student group called Alt News. Um, I th- you've told, I've told you about that. Um, yeah. But uh, Alt News 2646, it was a student run like magazine style show and uh, like it was a really small group of students who basically did everything. There wasn't a lot of faculty interference. And so like we had to learn the software and we had to shoot everything and we had to edit everything. And, um, I, I had known enough about final cut pro to sort of like get my feet wet in that, in that, in that regard. And I ended up, I actually edited and designed a whole like 32nd, um, like what they called an ID, like a commercial mm-hmm. for the first show within the show. I animated a whole 30 second one all within Final Cut Pro, just using Final Cut Pro plugins. And it was a pretty cool thing. And it ended up in an episode of, of the show that actually won an Emmy, which was pretty cool. That's awesome. Um, but it was all Final Cut Pro, you know? And like mm-hmm. at the time, I think even the creative director was like, why don't you just jump over to After Effects? And I was like, no, <laughs> you know, I, I was, I was intimidated by the software, you know? So, um, it was just, it's interesting, like how, you know, I started out just trying to like make that tool do what I wanted it to do. And I got pretty close. I would be so much better now, uh, if I could do it again, but, um, right. it was just an interesting step, you know, like I, they, they didn't like look over my shoulder while I was doing it. They said, Hey, you want to do an ID? And I was like, yeah. And so I took it from concept to completion all within final cut. And, uh, it was, it was fun. It was a good learning experience. Yeah. I, I think there's something interesting in there that you said too, of you basically made it so that your, you made the tool do what you needed it to do versus finding the right tool for the job, which I think mm-hmm. is really interesting. Um, it can be. I wonder how limiting that is too, though, you know, like how in, in, in necessary, I mean, I'll let me back up and just say that I'm a firm believer that limits are super helpful and, mm-hmm. um, and important even, but like, I wonder 
in what ways it would be different, good or bad, if I had known what I know now, you know, like, do I rely too much on certain, like, effects in After Effects to to handle what I want? Or was that kind of lo-fi, like, was that lo-fi approach what made it interesting? You know what I mean? Like, did that, did that force creativity? Well, I think about that with, like, uh, I think we were talking about this not too long ago, but, like, movies like The Matrix. Mm -hmm. I was watching that with my older um, two kids and they're like, wow, these graphics are amazing. And, um, 20 years think, old too. Well, and it, I think the scene was the lobby where the door explodes and the fire. And I'm like, well, that was real. I mean, the door was a composite later, but that explosion and everything happening was absolutely real. So these aren't special effects, but mm-hmm. to them growing up in the world where everything's shot in front of a green screen, they're thinking, wow, this is, this is amazing. This can't be. Yeah. That they're old. only like, they're only now getting good at fire simulations, you know, right. like it's taken them that long. Uh, and so 20 years ago, yeah, that looks awesome. I mean, I think we kind of take it for granted now cause it's so much easier to produce computer stuff, I guess. Yeah. Um, and to be precise with it, but man, they, they just killed it with that. Do you think with the way you've learned things, um, especially in this more lean mode that, um, there's a different quality to your work from having to do it that way versus having access to um, all the best software tools and, and maybe even um, other people to kind of bail you out on a, on a bad idea or. I, you know, I wonder about that sometimes because I, I, I think on the one hand I am proud of being able to just kind of handle it, you know, on my own and, and kind of take something uh, in it's like, like quote unquote purest form, you know, where it's like, it comes from my brain and it goes through my filters and it ends up being the, the thing that I want it to be. But I also kind of miss out on that like collaborative effect where like your first draft of an idea, uh, like I'll, and this applies to writing, to design, to anything, um, where, you know, I'll have an idea and like, it's pretty easy to get in that rut of like the first idea and like it kind of blossoms outward from that. But like, if you have support, you know, around you that can sort of be like, okay, well that's cool. First idea. But like, what if you tweak it just like five degrees and all of a sudden that sends your trajectory on a completely different path and it ends up being uh, something wildly different. And I guess it's a question of, of like preference, but, um, or perspective, but like how much better is it when, when several people can put something through a gauntlet mm-hmm. and, and um, kind of beat something into, into quality versus uh, like the, versus that like quote unquote purity of, of doing it yourself, you know? Right. Um, and that's the case with even like, uh, like the, the pitch decks that I build and stuff. I like, I always feel compelled to send them to people for feedback because I'm like, this was my first rut idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm genuinely looking for, you know, like harsh criticism, like somebody give me some design feedback because I want to make sure this resonates with someone else and not just like, Oh, Aaron likes it, you know? <laughs> All right. Um, do you send it to yeah. other people outside of just like design when you, when you're doing that? Like, do you send it to just other people who you have in your life that you respect oh, yeah. their opinion? Yeah. And I, but I think it's, it's almost like strategic because, 
like I, I for me, I, I don't know, like for uh, it, it also depends on what I'm sending. But like for just to stick with pitch books, for example, like I, I like to send it to designers. I like to send it to writers and I like to send it to just like fans of movies or TV or whatever it is I'm pitching. Right. Be, um, because you're going to get different feedback from all those people, you know, like I have a, a good friend, um, you know, Kyle. Yes. Uh, and, and like I send Kyle stuff because he and I like have a lot of the same tastes in movies and TV. And we talk about it with a certain vocabulary that's very different from how, like you and I would talk about a design right. or how like me and Josh, my brother would talk about a design. It's like different perspectives give you insights into how whoever might be looking at it might interpret it, you know, mm-hmm. especially for like pitch books for like film and TV where, uh, I can almost guarantee other designers aren't looking at it. It's the people who are non creatives or people who yeah. are kind of coming into it cold with a very different perspective. Like, are they going to spend money on this? Right. Um, and so to that end, you have to just really like impress people and, and, uh, hopefully leave them with a good flavor. And, um, I think as designers, we tend to look at the, the design first, you know, and not that I think that's, it's not necessarily totally divorced either. You know what I mean? Like design plays into all that stuff, but, um, we have a different angle in than other people. So I think that variety of feedback is always super helpful. It's also hard to get thorough feedback from people. You know, um, I think people who are unaccustomed to working in design are reluctant to give you notes, you know, Um, unless unless they're really simple. Like, here's a typo or this sentence was unclear, Uh, which I mean, that's helpful. But it's also like, okay, I want you to tell me how this makes you feel. I want you to tell me if this design feels, you know, like cluttered or if you're confused by just the visual element of it. But again, you know that's why you said you take it to designers and that's why you take it to non-designers. Yeah. I, I, that process of getting feedback, I think is an art form in and of itself. Mm -hmm. I I keep thinking back to people, um, especially getting older now too, watching movies, um, and seeing so many repeated characters, or if you look into the credits, how many of either thank yous or, um, producers are the same people Mm -hmm. throughout Mm -hmm all that time and it's like okay these, they, they found a rhythm together to mm-hmm. be able to be honest probably insanely brutally honest would be my assumption of the person that you love to hate and then <laughs> in, a, in a moment and then um, are okay with it again but um, I remember for myself growing up even being in a band um, ironically with two of my brothers they were probably the best people to have for feedback on an idea for a song because they could care less if you liked them at the end of that band meeting. Like we're brothers. So we have Mm -hmm. to like each other when we leave this room. But if (laughs) I I think if we were just a bunch of friends, we probably would put out even more mediocre work because I'm like, yeah, man, that's cool. Versus like, that's, you know, that's an interesting, that's an, that raises an interesting question. It's like, do you do your best work when you're working with friends or when you're working with people that you don't really care for personally, you know? Yeah. For me, it only works if I'm with friends um, in some capacity. I mean, even if I just met the person, I find a common ground as quickly as possible so that we have something to talk about outside. Well, yeah. And I think, I think if you, if you like, um, if you hate somebody, (laughs) then you have less of a freedom to like try things, you know, like you're more cagey. Yep. So, yeah. 
I don't know. How, how is that for you? Do you have you found? A, a, I mean, even back in the days of Salt, like you said, when the peak was twelve people, I would imagine you're not going out for a ton of feedback loops, um, even within the company well, at that point. At, it, at Salt, I was the um, I was the junior. You know, I was I was by far the youngest person there, um, and it was my first design job. And I had a boss who was uh, just really like hard on me, you know, not, um, I, I mean, like I, I, there are times where I resent it, but there's also times where I'm thankful for it, you know, where it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's definitely a motivational, uh, uh, uh strategy, you know, to, to never compliment the person that's, <laughs> you know, working for you, yeah. but it was also frustrating. But, um, at the, t- you know, at the same time, I did like the people I was working with and, um, and there was certainly like an like an atmosphere of permission to try things and to kind of like bounce ideas around. Um, but at the same time, I wasn't the guy calling the shots. And so more often than not, my ideas were either like, yeah, yeah, let's do it or no, you know, yeah. like just solid stop. Um, but it's I think it's just interesting how like when you work with friends, um, like I, I've written stuff with friends that ended up being really difficult to do because Mm -hmm. of the fact that we were friends and it's kind of hard to like, especially like I think writing is probably more personal in some ways than, than design. Um, and like when you're writing something with friends, that, that note process, like unless all of you are really open to notes and to not being precious as Mm -hmm. uh, a friend of mine calls it. Um, if you cannot be precious about your work, then notes are easy. But if, if you take it personally and if you sort of, uh, if you, if you're unable to sort of collaborate in a, in a totally free way, then that becomes like a really dangerous personal zone, you know, where it's like your friendship starts to suffer because you're criticizing each other's like internal voice, you know? Um, and so it's just weird. I, I don't know that. I mean, I wonder if maybe it's different art forms, are better for friend groups or not, or if it's just a matter of like what kind of friendship you have, like how open that friendship is and how strong your like internal, like, uh, you know, mechanism is for, for like communicating, you know? Um, I I don't know. I, I must, I assume it's different for everybody, but I do know that, um, I do know that like it is good to have a, like a positive vibe with someone obviously, because then, like we said, you know, it's, uh, it, there's a freedom to create a freedom to mess up and a freedom to just try things. And, right. um, I think that's key to design. I think on that too, I, the, when I've ever been creating with a group of friends, um, I think I've always put boundaries in there in some way, shape or form, whether or not it was intentional or not. So if like, like what, um, like, time boxing, like band practice, like, <laughs> all right, this is two hours afterwards. I'm going to leave. I don't, I'm not going to hang out after this point. Like I'm, I've done my creative duty <laughs> in a way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go home and I'm going to chill and either hang out with a different friend group or nobody at all. Um, where I've seen that be bad for me is if I haven't been able to find a way to cut that. So, mm-hmm. um, 
all night recording sessions have always been really, really bad. Um, and probably the most painful ones that I've ever had because you're around each other longer than you should have been. Um, you're missing meals or, um, your, your rhythms are just off. So even if you can collaborate with them perfectly, you're not going to in that environment. So just throughout my career, I've learned how to time box that. Even with what I do today, when I'm done, my phone goes away. Nobody Mm -hmm. can contact me unless I want to be contacted. Um, and if I don't do that, um, I think the relationships do kind of get strained during that process of creating something. Um, well, yeah, I mean, boundaries are, are healthy, right? Like right. In, in all walks of life, but especially when it comes to production, you know, mm-hmm. um, which are actually, do you think that it's possible to force, uh, I mean, I hesitate to say genius, but like, do you think it's possible to force like good creativity I have gone back and forth on that my entire career. And then I, I, I think I even wrote an article one time about just, there's this guy that I, I used to follow that would talk about writing and he would just sit down, even if he had nothing to write about and he would just start hitting the keys and just hear the sound and he would hear the rhythm. Wow. And then he's like, I, sometimes I would do that for like half an hour. And then and it's I just couldn't, I, I'm sorry. I could never do that. I like that. Like there's a part of my brain that like criticizes that kind of, and I'm not saying this is right. Maybe this is why it's hard for me to, to, to actually write something in total. Like I have friends who write things very quickly, um, Mm -hmm. who they just hammer out edit after edit, after draft, after draft, and they can just nail it. It took me, uh, like from, like from having the, like, seed of an idea to outlining and to finishing a pilot. It took me two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I've also written a feature film in, in one month. So it's not like I can't sort of like ride that line, but also it's like, I think it depends on how much I care about a project, yeah. you know? Um, but like people always tell me, it's like, yeah, if you sit there and you just hit the keys or if you sit there and you just write without editing, um, there's a stop point in my brain where it's like, no, that's stupid. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that can't be productive. Like you're not actually producing something. And I'm, right. I'm sure that there are, there are people who would say, uh, perhaps rightly that I'm my own worst enemy when it comes to that. But, um, <laughs> like if I don't sense some actual productivity in something, I'm, I'm more likely to stop it. You yep. know? Um, I think where, that's like, for, why I struggle with that so much. It's like, um, uh, Stephen King's whole routine of putting on ACDC on the lo-fi and sitting down and just typing and going, and then he gets up every time he has to, you know, change the album or whatever. I get, I get it. Like those are like little triggers to be like, okay, it's work time. This is, it's time to do this. Um, my creativity has to change throughout the day. It's not just going in and doing one task that I can essentially create that forced state of mind of like, all right, I'm going to design a website today. So I've got Hmm. this album, this music that, you know, whatever for me, it's like, well, I'm doing that. And then five other things. So I think there's also that part of what you're saying is, is it actually truly productive? 
I don't give myself a ton of room to not be productive. Like sitting there for half an hour and just making noise. I'd rather go get coffee with a friend for a little bit and get my head out of it mm-hmm. and then come back versus versus that. But that's why I struggle <laughs> with yeah. that, that whole question. And I th- Yeah, and I wonder how much of it for me is like wanting it to be right on the first try, mm-hmm. you know, um, which is I think like to kind of linger on the writing topic for a second, like I'm, I'm in the process of uh, pretty severely editing a feature. Um, I have a feature that's, um, that's been optioned and that it's being uh, looked at by some pretty great companies and stuff, but there are changes that need to be made um, to really kind of knock it out of the park. And one of those changes, just by nature of what it is, requires a pretty substantial rewrite from like page one. Uh, I'm able to like copy and paste chunks and stuff like that and and move at it, but it's still just like excruciating to do because like on the one hand, I don't care about the note they're asking me to change. Mm -hmm. Um, But also like I, I had an idea on the first draft to like how to, how to write it. And like, you kind of have that innate sense of like rhythm and, and flow and like you kind of understand what you want to execute. And so when you finish it, it was this huge uphill climb to get to that last page. And then since then I've done like minor edits and like gone back and tweaked scenes and added things and taken things out. But it's always been like microsurgery. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to like redoing something that was like, if you climb Mount Everest and then someone's like, Oh, by the way, you got to climb it again, you know, before you get off the mountain you're like what you know like that's not fair you're like i already did all the work man right um and so like it's like that mental part that's just really hard to evade where it's like man this is such a substantial uh journey like this is such a substantial amount of work like how did i miss the mark so bad the first time that it requires this much Mm -hmm. effort on the on the turnaround which is a super like i get it that's a pretty like selfish way to look at it and it's also pretty like amateur like yeah no duh like every writer rewrites and rewrites and rewrites it's not that's not new right um but i do find it so much more challenging you know mm-hmm. um uh and it's um I, I don't know i think i think it'll be worth it in the end if i can ever get this thing done but um it is really difficult to uh, get my brain in that place of like okay it's not going to be perfect just do it. You know, yeah. the only thing that's going to like get it done is the actual act of doing it. And that's a huge challenge for me. Is it easier for you to do work for yourself or for other people? Like if you had to wake up every day and you just did work for other people, would that be easier than writing your own feature length film and trying to create that I, I every day? That's a good question. I think, um, it sort of depends. Like I, like for design, I think it's a mixed bag because uh, I do, I create pitch books for the things that I write and um, I kind of live in that little chamber of like what Aaron thinks is cool, you know? And, <laughs> um, and because of that, I don't have a lot of external influence on like the quality of it. I mean, granted, I, I do try to get notes and feedback and I want to make it as good as possible, but I'm kind of flying by my own rules, especially when you're writing fiction and you can create, you know, there's no really wrong answer. I mean, I think there are wrong answers, but I, it's not, that's not being determined by someone else. You know, um, I think it would be really difficult to all day, every day, just write for someone else. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, 
perhaps that's just a lack of confidence on my part. Like I, it's hard enough for me to write for myself. You know, I, I can't imagine what it's like writing something that I'm not like deeply passionate about. Yeah. Um, but I do think that would be challenging. Um, but there's also like when you go back to design, I think there's a lot of freedom in just working for someone else. I mean, mm-hmm. like just having like kind of being able to let go of that self editing self, um, editing part of you that, that wants to perfect and perfect and perfect and get it exactly right. I think when you work for and with someone else, you can, uh, kind of, maybe this is the wrong way to put it, but you can sort of pass that, that buck to someone else and you get to be the executor and you can do the best you can do, but you don't have as much personal investment in the final product, you know, which lightens the load. Well, absolutely. And I think it also gives you a, uh, a bar of quality that you know you have to hit and it's not subjective to your own internal critique, which Mm -hmm. can be absolutely awful. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many personal websites I've designed for myself that have never seen the light of day. So, (laughs) um, yet I've launched (laughs) what feels like hundreds of other ones for, for other people. So, um, Do you think like that brings me? I had a thought earlier that that reminds me of like when you design something for yourself. Uh, a, do you think those haven't seen the light of day because you there's something about them that you're sort of just kind of passively unsatisfied with, where you think there's maybe a better version out there, or is it just because you tried something, didn't like it, and put it away? I think it's more the it's not as perfect as I want it to be. Um, and if it's something personal, I don't go out and ask people for help on that. It's like, if this is mine, I want to say that I owned a hundred percent of the process of doing Mm this. Um, if this is representing me, it feels weird to go out and ask somebody else to help me make that happen. But, um, that's also really dumb (laughs) because I don't know, like, I think too, like there's, there's things about being able to work with others that are just as much a part of a personal website and a portfolio on being a team member, um, and knowing how to pull things together to create your vision. That's more important than just never launching it because you can't figure out how to do something in after effects or, uh, write this bit of code, you know, to make the web the site go live. But, um, would you say that you are your own worst critic? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the podcasting is the first thing that I've put myself in such a limited amount of what I'll let myself do that I have to ship. So, like, one of my rules is I, I can only use GarageBand to record. Um, it's not that I don't have any other software to use it. It's It's that simple. And... If somebody was going to say, hey, how do I get into this? I can point them to all the free things and say, this is what you got to do and make it happen. Um, I'm also okay for some reason putting out imperfect versions of this. But if it's pixels, (laughs) I absolutely will not do that. Um, So it's actually been really refreshing to to pick a project like this and be okay with it. Honestly, I think that's my biggest flaw in general when it comes to being a creative person is that strive for perfection. I've had it since I was a little kid. Um, but don't you think, like, yeah. I, w- I would argue that I think most creative people 
have that 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 instinct you know to like because it's one thing to have a, a picture in your mind but when it comes to executing it you you want it to match that level of perfection so so distinctly you know mm-hmm. um and it becomes hard to sort of separate from like okay this is what i had in my brain versus this is what how i'm this is what i'm capable of putting down on paper or putting in code or putting yeah. uh, in design you know like that that gulf between what you imagine and what you can execute i think that gap is is like a universal like bane of a creative person's existence yep. you know um and that also makes me wonder like does that ever go away like are if someone who's an expert like I'm sure that there's still that gulf between what they imagined and what they can execute, or I, I have to imagine that because I would hope so. <laughs> yeah, because man, I mean, like I, I imagine, you know, that after I don't know, like I said, I've been doing design and and stuff for 15 years, and I'm I don't think I'm an expert per se, but I'm pretty seasoned in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, and um, there's still things that where I'm like, I, this looks nothing like I imagined. And I couldn't tell you the first step of how to get it to get it there. You yeah, know? it's and, crazy. Um, I was just thinking about that the other day. That I'm 20 years in at this point of doing uh, web design and and product work, which is insane to me. That mm-hmm. I've been doing it longer than I was in school. <laughs> like that. That blows my crazy. mind. But I'm still not even remotely satisfied with the work that I do. So like mm-hmm. if I've been doing this for 20 years and I'm still trying to get there like I would love to talk to somebody that's retired from the field and ask them if they ever reached it I would imagine not that they they never did but there was something that we actually we both know this person but it was my art teacher in in high grade school and high school um Mr. Monterelli and he oh, yeah. We were doing outside sketches of uh, things on the the grounds of the of the school, and he came up to me and tapped me on the shoulder, and he's like, "You went too far with the sketch." And I, it was just like a, it's like a water pump or something like that outside. He's like, "You could have stopped five minutes ago. You you're you're overly perfecting the sketch. Like hmm. we're just out here to be sketching. This is just for you to like." draw the lines, get your framing in to see if it's something that you like. And that's it. But I was in there like adding some shading to the, the bottom. Of rendering. It's, a, it's like, okay, <laughs> the sun's in this position. This is why I like it right now. So I need to capture that. And he's like, no, the, you come back and do that. You don't finish it all in the sketch. Your job is to get 15 things in your notebook in half an hour you're still on that first <laughs> that first thing because you're just trying to perfect it enough that you can come back to it later and it'll be easier. Um, and there, there's, I don't, I don't even know what it is that he said in that, that has stuck with me all this time other than there's so much more I could have done if I would have dropped my bar a little bit on capturing an idea or starting an idea, seeing if it had legs and then, you know, coming back to it and then actually finishing it. But um, I kind of feel like but do you think per- personal career a little bit too. <laughs> it's like I could yeah, but do, do you a lot more. Do you think that that's, is that like a universal truth or is that just a perspective of like how one artist approaches something? 
that I think that's why I struggle with it because um, I've met so many artists outside of that um, that will sit there and just sit and and finish the whole masterpiece in an afternoon or you know whatever. Um, I think where it keeps coming back on me is was that the project that was worth all the time? Like if mm. there's 15 I- items out there, I probably should have gone and found them and then decided after having a base knowledge of what it was, which one was worth attaching my time to and perfecting. But maybe that's, uh, maybe I'm overthinking that. I don't know. I- <laughs> no, no, that's, a, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question. Cause on the one hand it's like, well, you were captivated by that one thing and you wanted to do that one thing. Well, is that inherently like, does that have less merit than the 15 other things being just sketches or like, I mean, I guess in the, in the cons, in the like confines of it being like a class or being trained, then yeah, you got to do what you were asked to do. But like, just as a creative person, like is the value in, uh, in the variety or is the value in just the, how you perceive the execution of the one thing you're working on? Um, which I guess goes back to that whole question of perfectionism, you know, mm-hmm. and like, is it, is it worth, uh, like blood, sweat and tears to, to get it exactly right? Or, um, or, you know, or what? Um, I just think that's, that's an yeah. interesting. Well, it's something that I've fundamentally, like one of my, it's not a core belief, but it's just a belief of mine of like, when people talk about getting something out there, you know, MVP, minimum viable product. I hate that with a uh, oh. passion because to me it's most valuable product. It's like, I would rather cut things down so much that the one thing that does go out there at, in the time frame that people are expecting is so pure and, and good and actually functions the way you would hope it would mm-hmm. versus um, cutting corners to get more out. And I, I know that's probably like anti-business, um, but that's well, one of those things that just drives me crazy that um, we would totally skimp on understand. the quality of something just for the time of something. But Yeah, I think there's like a, a bit of idealism in that, but like I'm 100% with you. You know, I feel like if you're going to do something uh, with full knowledge that the quality doesn't matter, like why are you doing it you know like i i think as a creative you want to like you want to do something that resonates with you on like uh, an emotional spiritual level where it's like this was satisfying to inner aaron or inner jess like Mm -hmm. this satisfies the reason why i do the work in the first place um but again i wonder is that a matter of finding balance between like because i think the reality that a lot of artists struggle with is like the question of like the uh, integrity of the work, you know, like what you're describing, it's like you, you don't want to do something just to, to get it done, just to, to make the money or whatever. Um, you want to do the best you can so that mm-hmm. it's the best thing it can be. But at the same time, you know, like no one pays us just to be creative, you know, like I think there's an expectation of delivery an expectation of satisfying a need um, like filling a blank and providing a product. And at the end of the day, that cost, uh, 
it doesn't fall to us, right? You know, it's like we're not paying our own bills. And so, like, you are sort of beholden to the mechanism that allows you to do it for a living. Is there a way to find satisfaction in the the, the version that's just good enough, you know? Um, yeah, I, I think where I had to come to during that journey of doing this over the past 20 years is it's not my company and that's okay. And did the work that I was asked to do, did it provide the value that they were hoping for? And if it provided Mm -hmm. the value that they were hoping for, then I did the task. Like I could see the perfection and the ability to say, this is done. This is shipped. Shipping something is insanely hard. I think a lot of people forget that too. Like just to have something go live in general is amazing and should be celebrated every time it happens because there's so many things that die on the cutting room floor. So the fact that anything that you had a piece of can actually get there, I think is really, really awesome. But on the other side of that, I think that's why personal work is so hard for me because that is the one thing that I have the full control over to be perfect. There's nobody else out there saying, just get it out there. Um, But um, I have, back to like the friend group, my wife being part of that, I'll tell her ideas and things, and she can honestly help me get to a point of saying, it's good enough. Like, just Mm -hmm. get it out there. Um, Because she's not in my head seeing how much better that could be or whatever. So... Well, yeah, I think part of it for me is like there's an angle. There's, I, I think I've gotten to a point now where I, I am, I'm able to and kind of I'm ready to like ship stuff. I'm ready to just like share it with people. But I always feel this like need to like caveat it by be like, okay, here's a, here it is. Just so you know, it's only about 80% of what I wanted it to be. You know, I always feel yeah. like they need to sort of like soft sell it where it's like, I know this isn't as good as it could be because I, I want you to appreciate that my instincts are, are more of a perfectionist than what you're seeing, you know? And like yeah. most of the time, most of the, most of the time, I don't Sometimes think I'm anyone... curious if that's a, maybe even like a Midwest thing oh, because maybe. I catch this now that I'm a bit older, but if you like go to a friend's house and, and they have new furniture, let's say, and you're like, oh, wow, that looks really great. Instead of just accepting the compliment, like, oh, thanks, that looks, you know, we really like it too. It's like, oh, I got it for this massive discount, like 75% off going out of business sale. Like, they can't just be happy with the thing that they bought or made look beautiful. There has to be this little thing in here, like, Oh, but I, I didn't spend full price. Like, nowhere close. Like, I have to justify um, every little, <laughs> every little tiny little detail of it. Like, I got it on a great deal. Um, I, I, I do think there's, a, like, an innate sense of cynicism toward growing up in the Midwest. I'm not sure why that is or where that comes from. But uh, <laughs> it is it is ever-present. Um, <laughs> all the time. And it, it, it's funny because, like, a lot of times if you... Yeah, to be the person complimenting, it's like you're not worried about what price they paid or where they got it from. You're just you're noticing the quality of something. Right. Uh, so that 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 leads me to think that people that we're sharing our creative work with have to 
kind of be in the same boat where it's like they don't care that that it's not maybe there's like still 20 percent to go right between what we wanted it to be and what it is i think they they can view it objectively and they see the quality in something and they're like oh no this is great why what are you worried about yeah but like i think most creative people probably have that feeling of like oh man you know like it's not quite <laughs> quite what i wanted it to be you know i i can't imagine how i mean back to some like your pitch work um those are incomplete ideas just in the nature of the fact that it's a pitch it's this is the what if this is what it could be and i think um maybe there's a slight difference in that too of when you go to it as a pitch you don't have to worry about the last 20% of something because you haven't gotten for there. Sure. You're ready to for bring sure. people along versus asking for feedback on how the pitch deck looks. It's like, well, okay, this isn't done yet. Um, and here's what I'm going to do. And here's what I'm thinking, but I will have feedback on it. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, like maybe this is awful. Like maybe I, I shouldn't even admit this, but like, I think that's one reason why I enjoy working on pitch decks so much is because there's a certain built in like plausible deniability, you know, where it's like, I know it's not perfect, but I'm dealing with an imperfect thing. You know, mm-hmm. a pitch is just to communicate like a concept and a feeling like it's up to somebody else to execute on a detailed basis. And so like there's a freedom in a pitch to just be throwing paint against the wall and, and letting it be, imperfect but still perfect you know a pitch Mm -hmm. kind of has an innate expectation of like hey well this isn't going to be perfect this isn't how it's going to ultimately look this is just to give me an idea and within that you're free to do whatever you want you know like there's there's forgiveness (laughs) built into the end result yeah and um that's really on in a weird way that's like deeply satisfying for me where it's like if i can get you to the point where you like something, even though it's imperfect, you know, then I've, then that's, that's doing the job well. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, not to, not to discredit, I think there is a great amount of artistry in a good pitch, you know, like it's not that it's, that requires less, uh, like skill or instinct or creativity, but it definitely, the, the polish doesn't need to be as inscrutable, you know? Um, I mean, I'd argue that a pitch deck is probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to make because really, you're having to say so much in roughly 12 to 20 slides Mm -hmm. and they have to fit on a television screen that people can Mm -hmm. read. Mm -hmm. And that is it. (laughs) And, you know, in a good pitch too, isn't just reading everything that's on the screen in front of them. Mm -hmm. Like if that's the case, you just send it ahead and you never bother anybody's time. It's like you have to, become the pitch you have to know the story from the beginning to the end you have to tell that entire narrative um and if you're good at it it only takes 20 slides i've seen some 40 50 60 page slides (laughs) (laughs) and it's like um you left nothing uh to the imagination or honestly you've over pitched it and I well, don't yeah, I mean, if you can't, why I need to be a part of it, it seems like you've got it all figured out. Yeah, if you can't communicate an idea in a less number of pages, then there might be something that's overwrought about the mm-hmm. idea, right? Like it's it's not. Um, I think part of that goes into like the editorial like mindset of you know, um, 
well, I can even pair this back to writing where it's like I, in this pilot I just wrote, you know, um, it took me a long time to figure out because I was trying to figure out how to communicate the entire idea in one episode. But then like when I finally started like, like internalizing the concept, no, it's okay to leave things open. It's okay to not tick all those boxes. Cause all you need to do is get someone interested. Mm-hmm. You know, like your job is to, um, to, to grab someone's attention and give them a dose of like, this is kind of the flavor of what you're getting into. Here's the seeds of the story. But like, I didn't even introduce a couple of the main characters because they just don't naturally come up in the story yet. And that's okay. You Mm -hmm. know? Um, so the same goes for like when you're pitching, especially when you're pitching a narrative idea, like the fine points, if you have to pitch every single point for your story to make sense, then I think there might be a problem with your story. Yeah. Or if like, if you're trying to pitch uh, a design concept, if you have to illustrate every single frame, then either you're dealing with a client who should not be a client or (laughs) you are, like kind of drowning them in detail that's not going to matter. You know, yeah. like if, if um, we worked on that pitch, you know, recently together where like we clearly didn't do the entire thing. We just gave a flavor, you know, mm-hmm. here's, here's the broad strokes. Um, we gave them enough visuals to communicate the style, but we also left a lot out, you know, we had like a ton, we left yep. a ton of information out, but that was enough, you know, mm-hmm. like if they're not grabbed by the first, four or five frames, then you're not going to get them, you know? So like you have to yep. justify every page in a, in a pitch yep. deck. Well, what was fun with that pitch is you and I, we picked a song that had like some interesting punch and narrative to it by itself. And I remember mm-hmm. when I was giving that pitch um, to those executives and they were sold before because I had them turn the music on so they could hear it a little bit. And then they went through the, the first couple slides and they were sold before we even told them what the rest of it was, like the mm-hmm. actual program part <laughs> of it. It was just like, oh, yeah, this is great. But there was something inter- interesting in that whole project is that we didn't go at that one to sell our idea. We learned about who they were, what they loved, what their organization was doing. And we just came alongside that and just boosted it a little bit further. And mm-hmm. um, they even said it was one of the pit- best pitches that they've ever had. And they weren't expecting it from us because we weren't some. We're not. Like, we're we not some big agency house, or anything. Yeah. We were, you know, doing this for for work. So um, people probably don't think about that kind of stuff coming out of a a fintech. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, that that actually raises a question for you, I think. Like, it's do you think that pitching is as much about, like, nailing the message? Or do you think it's about communicating, like, a like-mindedness? Like, do you think people really care about how... I mean, I'm sure it's different from project to project. But, like, in the case of... In that case, they didn't get to the punchline of the pitch. Like, we we had this whole, like, message built out with a great, like ending punch mm-hmm. that like kind of nailed their message, but they were already sold before we got there. So it's yep. like, is it, is it the look and feel that sells it? Or do you think it's the, like the clarity of message that really clinches it? Honestly, I think it's the perfect blend of both. Um, it, it was, there's something in there too, where it wasn't so perfect that they couldn't interject themselves into it as well. So it wasn't a, 
take this for exactly what it is and make this happen. It was, this is what we envision could be part of what we do together. And then we took feedback from them and started creating things. And like what this final product will be when it's all said and done, is not going to be exactly what we pitched, but you're going to see those crossovers all the way through Mm -hmm. it. Um, Right. So we gave them room to like inject their own identity. Yep. And make Um, it their own. Um, And what was fun is when we went and actually met with them um, in a follow-up meeting at, at their location they were like, we wanted to give you back the ne- a deck half as cool as what you gave us and and then went into the things that they're hoping to do and the stuff in the community that they were excited about and how it would all tie back together. But they were like, it it lit a fire under us to, to up it. Um, I think that's the greatest compliment I think we could receive. Yeah. You know, like, like aside from them, like saying the project is a buy and that they're good for it, I think we kind of almost intimidated them in the sense where we came at them prepared and like their organization is so much more like they have so much more endless resources than we do with an international reach and like a brand that everyone knows, but like, we're just two dudes from, you know, the Midwest (laughs) who kind of just came up with something. And like, we were able to like, I guess this is a self brag, but we were able to sort of like get them feeling like they had to carry their weight in the yeah. partnership as opposed to us trying to like tag along and just like hope we can make a dent on their organization. I think like that's, that's such a huge like compliment. That's such a feeling of success, you know, that yeah. like the end product doesn't even really matter as much now that we've kind of illustrated that, you know, like we were able to kind of like justify mm-hmm. our, our time, you know? Um, well, we knew that where was where just it could like, go. Great. And then we know where it's going to be, and and, and that's totally okay. It's like, mm-hmm. and I, I think what was interesting for me with that whole project too is that I I don't know that I've ever experienced this, but that was a project where you and I were on a phone call in the morning, and I think we had the deck done that afternoon. Oh yeah, I mean it was a couple hours. Yeah. It, that kind of always goes back to my mind of like when you are completely aligned on something that you're doing and ready to just attack it, that's, there's nothing that will stop. And you know, and that's time flu. Oh, for sure. And I got to say, I think that ties back to how we started this conversation where like we were a lean team. It was just mm-hmm. you and me doing that, you know, and that it didn't open the door for a lot of external feedback that was going to muddy the message that allowed us to just kind of get down and, and, and do it. You know, like we yep. didn't have to sit through meeting after meeting about what's our strategy going to be here. And I'm sure that's useful for some things, but like, I think that's just another illustration of why a lean, uh, like hungry, talented team can, can pr- produce something really magical, you know? Yeah. I mean, I would even go as far as to say the talent part can almost not be part of it. It's like, if yeah. you're just hungry, you're going to make it happen. I mean, well, I don't want to discount. I mean, we're, we're talented individuals. <laughs> like, I think that's that's an important that, part that of That is equation. definitely an important part of how the execution happened and how quickly it happened. But I, I think there's, there's something to just wanting to knock it out of the park. Like, that drive 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can teach that. You know, like if it's there and it's part of who you are, it's just part of who you are. But um, there was something else in that project that I thought was really cool, which was the lead on that from the product side trusted us to just do it. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and that was what was funny to me too. He called me, I called you 20 minutes later, and we had a review at the end of the day. And he was like, perfect. We'll talk to them in a week. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's important too, is like knowing when and how to stay in your lane, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's great that we all have opinions, but sometimes I think there's a time to share that opinion and a time to just keep your mouth shut and, and do what they're trusting you to do. And, um, that's a lesson I'm still learning on a day to day basis where like there are times when I really want to push back about something, but I'm kind of like, you know what, ultimately that's not why I'm here. Yeah. And like, I'm going to do the best I can do with what I have. And, um, that's just part of collaboration. It's part of, you know, being an adult, you know, just compromising <laughs> on those moments and yep. um, trusting that your work will speak for itself, you know? Yeah, I wish there was a better word than compromise for that process yeah. because I hate that the idea of compromise having to be one of the only options on that. It's like, we, why can't you just both have arrived to the same conclusion? through a process of debate. But I, man, I don't know that that's, I don't know that that's always possible, right? You know, like people are going to have, yeah. I, I think it's, especially when you're on a team that just kind of fundamentally differs from you. Like, I think that's why it's important to work with like-minded people uh, and why kind of like earning the trust of your team is important. But like I've worked with more than a few people where it's just like, okay, well, we're just never going to see eye to eye on this because we have different opinions, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and in that case, it's kind of like, well, uh, I mean, is this a hill worth dying on or is this just a matter of like, well, I'm here to do a job and I'm going to, I'm going to try to do it my best and kind of let go of that editorial instinct. Well, and I think that's why there's so much beauty in the projects that you get to do for yourself versus the ones that you're hired to do. It's like, okay, Mm -hmm. I can admit, I can just agree to say that I'm just doing my job for you right now and you're paying for my time and this will be what we do, but have something bigger than that for yourself to work on. You know, I mean, it doesn't even have to be work. It can just be a hobby or something that you enjoy, like writing music or playing music or whatever, but having something to be a hundred percent in control of to kind of pre-ground that. I think that's one of the biggest problems I have is being an artist or a designer. Um, just taking myself out of the equation at the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, and not becoming this, uh, horribly grumpy version of myself for, uh, <laughs> Because the person giving the feedback or, or you, that you might not be aligned with, they don't care. At the end of the day, they're after they get that feedback, they go off and go do their next thing or whatever. To them, it was just a couple seconds, and you know, at least for me, that could have been a week's worth of work um, that just disappeared. Mm-hmm. And uh, I need to figure out that point of, oh, okay. That's fine. <laughs> I'll just do it again and uh, not not take it too personally. But 
Yeah, I uh, just to F1, I have to jump off here in a couple minutes. I could easily, I could easily keep talking for another two hours about all the things that are coming up in my brain. Um, That's why we'll just I, do I'm more. Gonna, yeah, because this has been really fun, man. I really enjoy these conversations, and I, I'd, I'd be curious to see how you can edit this down. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it is fun to edit down, and I think the other part that's really fun with this is that we only talked about one one question of the five really like but what's funny is we got into every part of it so like mm-hmm. I, we're talking about lean production but the other ones were like the art of telling a story how you grew up integrity in the work that you do and the art of of a, of a good pitch yeah we covered all of it would, i'd like to i'd <laughs> like to zero i'd like to zero in more on like the telling a story part. Like mm-hmm. if we can do this again, like talk more specifically about that and like crafting a story, like yep. taking it from an idea and building on that and, and fleshing it out. Like, I think that's a really fascinating topic. We could totally, we could do another whole episode on that. You know? I'll take you up on that. Aaron, thank you so much for being part of this. I really appreciate it. And to all the listeners, thank you. Uh, thank you for giving me a moment of your day to just share these stories and until the next episode stay safe and go create something beautiful <laughs>